Right? We were talking about avidity. We had talked about affinity being the, the one-to-one sort of interaction between an antibody and the epitope, or between the antibody and the epitope, right? Or between that FAB fragment or between that antigen binding site on the FAB fragment and a single epitope, right? That one-to-one affinity. And then we talked about avidity, which was going to be the strength of multivalent attachments, right? So as individual antibodies are binding to an antigen itself. So, right, three populations with a low affinity is going to be able to be uh, combined to have a higher avidity for the antigen. So this is where we left off. So if we're looking at avidity, in a lot of cases, avidity is going to be more important than affinity in most biological systems. Right? Again, we're, we're really functioning on the immunology of it. So we really don't care, well, I guess we do care. We really don't care that if an antibody is making a very high affinity bindings uh, interaction here, and this is, right, some sort of white blood cell that's going to be able to use its FC receptor to be able to identify that antibody molecule, or, right, if we have antibodies coming on and coming off because of low affinity, uh, low affinity if we make up for it with that avidity, having at least something bound at that point in time, that's okay for us, right? Biologically speaking. So a high avidity is going to be able to compensate for a low, avid, uh, for a low affinity, right? Because at least we're having something bound there at any one point in time. And that's the idea behind having those antibodies there is that we're going to be able to starting started to coat this invader to be able to allow the rest of the immune system to be able to recognize that invader right the antibodies have recognized it but like we said before right if we go back in time here at one point in time not a bell this B cell using its antigen receptor on the surface has already identified that invader, right, by this same sort of interaction with the epitope, and then this B cell releases antibodies that are going to be able to bind. So high avidity is going to be able to compensate. So if we look around, right, the affinity is going to be that single one-to-one interaction with the the antigen to make that high affinity antigen-antibody complex. So that would be the example of it over here. And the immunoglobulin molecule that best typifies that is the IgG molecule. Most IgG molecules are very high affinity molecules. And when we talk later on, right after the first test, when we come back and look at at these uh, things in more detail, we'll be able to, we'll be able to, to let you know why IgG does have such a high affinity, right? It's, IgG is going to undergo certain molecular changes, so it's going to be a higher affinity molecule. All right, but affinity is that one-to-one binding, and avidity, right, are going to be multiple attachments. So when you think about multiple attachments, right, you're thinking about things like IgM. So IgM molecules in general have a very low affinity for their antigens, for their epitopes. And IgM is going to make up for it, 
right? It's going to use its avidity to make up for its low affinity. So if we think about IgM and its avidity, right, it brings us to the concept of right, valence. And that's how many binding sites on a particular antibody molecule. So when we've been looking at all of these molecules, when we looked at all these molecules the other day, right, when you think about valence, the binding sites on the antibody molecule, so if this is the IgG interacting here, right, it's got two sites, so it has a valence of two. When you think about IgA, depending upon if you're looking at monomeric IgA or dimeric IgA, we might as well call it secretory IgA, right, then the IgA could have as many as, as four sites on the, on the molecule itself, right? So it's valence is going to be either two or four, and if we're looking at IgM, and I want to keep all of them up here at the same time, if we're looking at IgM, one, two, three, four, five times two is ten, right? Now, that's its true valency, right, by mathematically speaking, but in real life, its valency is probably only around five because, right, if this is going to be able to bind in here, then other things aren't going to be able to get in, right? Let's say there's another bacteria here, and if, and if this is sort of binding, right? So really in this example, since this one isn't available for binding, it would only be about eight, right? So in real life, it's only about five. So these are the differences between all these different antibody molecules in terms of their binding and their affinity. So IgM makes up for its low affinity by having such a high avidity. And that's only because right, it's that pentameric sort of form of the molecule itself. So now we have an antibody molecule binding to an epitope. Okay? So what can we use that, right? If we're going to use these for different sort of experimental techniques, if we're going to use them for, for uh, tools to be able to study antigens and antibodies, the first thing that we're going to be able to find, the first thing that we're going to be able to see when these takes place are precipitation reactions. Because as these antibodies are binding and as these antibodies are forming that antigen-antibody complex, and that antigen isn't going anywhere, and more antibodies start binding, right, we're going to be able to see precipitations taking place. And precipitation, right, just as its name takes place, right, when things fall from the sky, precipitation means things are falling out of solution, right? So there's going to be two stages to these precipitation reactions, and the first stage are going to be, right, sort of building up from these small complexes to larger and larger complexes. Right? So if we're talking about, right, let's just sort of get away from talking about binding to bacteria here, and let's go back to sort of our immune complex example. Right? So this is all of our antigens just sort of in solution, right, at any one point in time. And assuming we have all these epitopes, right, that are going to be binding. So what's going to happen is, right, as more and more antibody molecules start recognizing more epitopes, right, we're going to go from small sort of reactions, right, small to 
larger reactions. And when we get to a certain amount right, of interaction between antigen and antibody, that's when this is going to fall out of solution. Right? There's not going to be enough energy in the water to keep these uh, proteins soluble anymore, and they're going to fall out, and you're going to be actually able to see them as they're precipitating out. Right? So this lattice work of antigen-antibody complex builds up and up and up. Finally, a visible <laughs> precipitate is going to be formed. Right? It's going to fall out of solution. So this is going to depend on a whole bunch of different things. It's going to depend on the valency of both the antigen and the antibody. To be able to have this antigen or this antibody cross-linked by antigen, we need to have right, a certain amount of binding sites on the antigen that are going to be recognized by the antibody. So the antibody must be bivalent. Right? So it's got to be at least bivalent. So is it going to work with an FAB fragment? Right? Think about it. Think about it conceptually. If we take this same thing in here, right, we have our same uh, antigen mix, what are our FAB fragments going to do? I'm just going to do this. Right? the same idea as what's going on over here, it's just that we have those FAB pieces, we're not going to be able to get a precipitation reaction. What? If we're talking about FAB fragments, what if we take an FAB prime 2 fragment? It's going to work? Oh, come on, this is one of my favorite test questions. Haven't been studying yet? It's going to work? It's easy, yes or no, say it. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> eh, wrong answer. If we're looking at FAB prime 2, what was the FAB prime 2? It was that. Right? Is FAB prime 2 going to work? Sure. If I go over here and if I get rid of the FC, is it working? Yes. There you go. That's one right on the test so far. All right, if I take my same thing, if I put my FC fragment in, is, there, is it going to work? No. Oh, that's the right answer, right? Because remember, the FC fragment right, is the rest of the molecule, and it has no antigen binding sites on it, right? This is the area of antigen recognition. The FC doesn't have that. So what you would have if you were put in FC fragments, Again, we're starting with our mixture. You would have, I don't know, I don't even know how to draw it. It would look like this, right? This, on this side. Wouldn't bind to anything. Just be a bunch of proteins in solution. So you wouldn't get any sort of reaction taking place, right? So the antibody has to be bivalent at least, and the antigen has to be at least bivalent or polyvalent, right? Let's say, Right? We took our same antigen mixture, and let's say this, there was only like one epitope on here right? that the antibody would be able to recognize, only one. So an antibody would bind like that, antibody would bind like that, antibody would bind like that. And again, right? antibody is 150,000 molecular weight. Let's say the antigen's 20,000. It's only 190,000 molecular weight, that protein would stay in solution. That protein complex now would stay in solution. 
right? So you wouldn't get a precipitation forming. So the antigen's got to be at least bivalent, right? Because we need to have at least another epitope on there, right? So now, right, we can start to build up that lattice work, right? To get bigger and bigger and bigger until it eventually falls out of, out of solution, okay? So the first thing we can look at when we look at precipitation reactions is we can look at these precipitation reactions either in the fluid phase or in the gel phase. And in the fluid phase, all we're going to do is take an antibody in, 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 in solution and add antigen to that antibody in solution. We're going to do it in a liquid form. And what we're going to see when we do the experiment is we're going to see areas that are going to form that are basically where antibody is in excess of the antigen, where antigen and antibody are the same amount, and where antigen is in excess. Right? So let's put up a picture. Right? So here's our picture. So what are we doing in this picture? Along this axis is the amount of antigen we're going to add. Right? So that means we're increasing the amount of antigen. And over here is the precipitate that's going to come down into the tube. Right? We're doing this all in the fluid phase, so we're going to do this in a test tube. Right? So I'm saying we're going to have antigen in here, we're going to have antibody in here, and eventually right, we're going to make these antigen-antibody complexes, and you'll be able to see the precipitate at the bottom of the tube. So what are we looking at in here? What we're going to do is we're going to keep the amount of antibody the same, and we're going to increase the antigen, right? We have to increase something. We have to hold something else the same, or else we're never going to see a change. And if we vary both of them, then we're going to not going to know what's contributing to the, to the reaction itself, right? So we're holding antibody the same, and we're increasing antigen. And we're going to look at how much was, was, was precipitated. So in the supernatant, right, we have the supernatant fluid, and then we have the pellet. So we have what's ever left in the supernatant, and we have whatever is being part of the precipitate. Right? So we're going to add more and more antigens. So what are we looking at over here? Here we have a whole bunch of antibody right? and not a lot of antigens. So this is zero antigen and all the antibody we needed. And as we start increasing and increasing, right, the antigen, we don't see antigen in the supernate because it's being tied up by the antibody. So we are starting to see some precipitate forming in here. Right? And as we add more and more and more, there's eventually going to be a place up here where we have no antibody and no antigen because this is the equivalent zone and this is our maximum amount of precipitate that's being formed. And then as we keep going further and we're adding more and more and more antigen, we're not getting any antibody in the, in, the, in the supernatant anymore, because basically the precipitate is getting in the way, right? I'm not the precipitate, the antigen's getting in the way. We have so much antigen, right, that it's tying up the antibodies, and the antibodies aren't able to participate anymore, because there's way more antigen than there is antibody. And then we start to see the, the peak falling back off, right? So here's a way we could tell, right? We could use this as, a, as an indicator of 
right? The strength between the antibody and the antigen, or if the antibody is even capable of recognizing the antigen, right? You could do this experiment with an antigen and any, and any antibody, or an antibody and any antigen, and, right, you could set this up, and if this antibody doesn't even recognize the antigen, then we're never going to see a precipitate, right? So you wouldn't even get this formation taking place. So you could use this sort of as a diagnostic or an indicator assay to see if the antibody is capable of recognizing the antigen. So this is one thing that you can do. The other thing that you can do is you could set this up in a, in a gel mixture. And a gel mixture, we're going to talk about a gel mixture, is just sort of an inert matrix. Right? Think of the gel as an inert matrix. Think of the gel right, as some jello. Right? Everybody has familiarity with jello. Right? Maybe you made jello as a little kid. Maybe you like to go to the, right, to the cafeteria and eat jello. You have jello at home. Right? So when you take jello, you start off with that, that agar in the box, in that little packet. You start boiling your water. You add that solid agar into the water. There's a, a lot of energy in the water. It breaks apart the agar. It puts the agar into solution, right? In the boiling water, the agar disappears, right? It goes back into solution. And then you take your jello mixture, and right, it could be your strawberry jello, you like lemon lime jello, whatever it is. You take your jello, you pour it into I don't know, a glass or a cup or a bowl, and then you put it on the counter or you put it back into the refrigerator. Energy leaves, heat energy leaves the mixture, agarose comes back into solution, and now you have this solid matrix. Right? So that's what we're dealing with here. So what we're going to do is, we're going to take well, that same sort of interaction. So now instead of doing it in here, right, now we're going to do it maybe in a plate. Well, I don't want to make it look like it's wavy. And now we have agar, right? We have this solid matrix that we're going to be able to use things. So we can do a whole bunch of things with this. The first thing we're going to do is, right, we're going to put a little well, we're going to put a little well in here, right? And this well is going to allow us to put either antigen or antibody into that well. Because right? now we have a vessel here to be able to receive whatever we're going to be able to put in there. So the first thing we can do is what's called a radial immunodiffusion assay. So radial means right circular or around, immunodiffusion, right? Something with the immune system is going to diffuse away. Right? It's going to go from high concentration to low concentration. So what we're going to do in a radial immunodiffusion assay is we're going to do this same thing Right? We're going to take our agar, we're going to boil our agar, we're going to have it cool down, and then when the agar gets to be around, I don't know, pick a nice temperature. Right? Room temperature is 22 degrees, that's when the agar is going to come out of solution and reform the gel. So let's not say 22, let's say 40 degrees. Right? I said immunoglobulin molecules were stable up to about 70 degrees, right? so at 40 degrees. We're going to add our antibody mixture to our agar solution, and then we're going to put it into this, into this plate, and what are we going to have? What we're going to have in here, right, all these antibody molecules that are in here are basically going to be locked inside the matrix. Well, 
not that matrix, not Neo in, inside the matrix, right? It's going to be locked inside this gel, and it's not going to be able to go anywhere, sort of like the real matrix, all right? And that's what we're going to have for radial immunodiffusion. And then we're going to add our antigen in here, right? So here we are. Instead of looking into, the, into the, the plastic dish like I have it here, now we're looking down into the dish. Right? So here's the well. Right? I added antigen into the well. And again, right, all these antibody molecules are fixed inside the gel because they were in the gel when it was cooling, so they can't go anywhere. So as this, an as this antigen starts to diffuse away, Right, and the antigen's just going to move by diffusion from high concentration out to low concentration. Right? As it starts to diffuse away, it's going to come into contact with, that anti with those antibody molecules. And right, as this is diffusing out, it's going to come into contact with those antibody molecules. The precipitate is going to form. And we're going to be able to see the precipitate right here. Right? You'll be able to see it. And depending upon the strength of the binding, the affinity of the antigen to the antibody, right, you are going to be able to see this ring forming. That's the radial immunodiffusion part. And this ring, right, if we have a high affinity, this ring will be closer to the well. Or if we have a lot of antibody molecule in here, this ring can grow even fatter, right? They're showing the ring this fat, but if there's even more, it can get to be that fat. So here's a, 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 an easier way to do that experiment we're talking about. Instead of putting it into the glass, right, into that glass tube, we could make up a whole bunch of these different uh, agar wells. We could add the antigen. We wait a little while. This antigen is recognized by that antibody molecule. We're going to see that ring form. If it's not recognized, we're not going to see the ring form. Question? I, well, absolutely, yes. But again, right, if we're talking, most of the time if we're talking about in our body, we're talking this is going to happen, right? Antibody binding to here, right? So that we're not going to get that precipitate forming anything from here. This is going to be recognition. But absolutely, right? If you have that, those foreign macromolecules in your body, if you, have, if you just got stung by that yellow jacket or you just, you know, whatever it was, Absolutely, you can make immune complexes, and there are immune complexes forming in your body all the time. And if it's sort of a routine immune complex, those antibody molecules will have fulfilled their obligation, right, to protect you because they're going to bind to this and it's going to be removed. It's going to go to your kidney and it's going to be removed. If, on the other hand, right, let's say there's some sort of pathology going on and we have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of antigen in there and we're making these you know huge immune complexes and again I can't give you a number you know but if we're making a whole lot of we're making right these big immune complexes and some autoimmune diseases right their etiology the pathology of their etiology absolutely is large immune complexes and immune complexes all the time Right, if this stuff gets to the kidney, it can clog the kidney, and that's why a lot of autoimmune diseases have kidney sort of uh, uh, effects, right? So you can get kidney damage from autoimmune diseases. But absolutely, these are forming in your body all the time.
and they're being, you know, under normal pathology, they're being removed the way they should be removed. We're just going to use this sort of reaction in the laboratory for our own purposes. So again, we could have, right, maybe you've seen 96 well plates, right? We could make a right, piece of plastic that have a whole bunch of these wells in them. We could sit here and make a whole bunch of these sort of trenches inside of our gel. We could add a whole bunch of different antigens and we could look to see exactly what is reacting with what, right, based on the different antibodies we're going to use here. Does this antigen have an affinity for this antibody, for this antibody, for this one, for this one, for this one, right? You can do a nice diagnostic test this way. Right? A lot of people use this diagnostic test this way. The other thing that we can do, right, we're going to do one step further. We're going to take this one step further. We're going to do what's called a double immunodiffusion. Right? So instead of radial, we have double immunodiffusion. It means we're going to have two things that are going to be related, immuno, immuno speaking, and diffusion is again going to be part of the, uh, the equation driving this. And this is called the octroloni. Right? Change it uh, around the 19, early, uh, middle 1900s, 1910s, 1920s or so. Dr. Octoloni had this good idea. So what does Dr. Octoloni come up with an idea? Dr. Octoloni comes up with, a, with the same sort of idea, only now we're making the same sort of agar, right? We're making the same jello. And instead of fixing antibody molecules, what we're going to do now is, right, double immunodiffusion. We can have a whole bunch of different wells in here, and we can do a whole bunch of different fun things to see what's taking place. Right. So, where's our picture? Here's, whoops, here's our picture. Right. So, here's our double immunodiffusion, right? So, what we're doing now is, into each one of these wells, we're adding either antibody or antigen. So if I look down, right, into this plate again, right, let's say I put, I'm going to put my antibody in here, and I can put a whole bunch of different antigens, right, these are all individual antigens, different antigens in these wells around. Same sort of diffusion is going to take place. So that's what we're looking at here. Right? In this example, we're looking at this well and these two wells. So we're looking at this well and these two wells, let's say. So in this cartoon, right, you've got to remember, we're getting diffusion. So here, right, antigen, exact same two antigens with epitope A, and this antibody is capable of recognizing epitope A. But remember, right, the, the, we're still getting radial immunodiffusion because, right, this, all of this is diffusing out this way. Clearly, the, the, the artist isn't going to show us that because it would get really confusing, but you have to think about this taking place, right? So this is all diffusing out this way, and in this well, the antibody well, right? This antibody, again, in this cartoon shows it coming this way, but it's also diffusing this way, right? So we don't care about any of this because Nothing's going to happen out here because this is just antibody going out into the, into the gel. This is just antigen going out into the gel. And nothing's going to happen up here, 
right? Because those two antigens are going to diffuse from each one of these wells. They're just going to cross against each other. So we're not going to see any of that. They're going to stay in solution. The only, way, the only place we're going to see something taking place is when that diffusing antigen meets that diffusing antibody. The same sort of reaction is going to take place that we just looked at in the radial immune diffusion, right? We're going to see this line. Right? This is where the antibody is interacting with the antigen and the precipitate is forming. Right? This is called, right, a line of identity, right? We get this single connecting line because, right, remember, we got antibody dif uh, antigen diffusion here and here and antibodies up here, right? So this is a single line of identity. In this example, here we have two antibodies inside this well, right? The antibody to epitope B and the antibody to epitope A. Here's antigen that has epitope A, antigen that has epitope B. Diffusion, right? All that diffusion is still taking place. And this is called a line of non-identity, right? You can see that it crosses right here because it's not going to make this continuous line because A is going to only interact with, an with anti-A. And they're going to be moving out in this direction. And anti-B is only going to be able to recognize B, so they're moving out in that direction. Right? So this is called a, a line of non-identity. So what this tells you is that there's nothing in A that shares any epitopes with, what, with, with whatever is in B. And then you, know, then you can get the line of partial identity. Right? It gets really sort of wacky here, right? because then you can get uh, Right, a line of identity, and then you get sort of a non-line of non-identity, and you, know, you could think about this all day. So here's our anti-AB antibodies in here. Here's an antigen that has both A and B epitopes. Here's the antigen that has only the B epitopes. So this green line is the line of identity for the B epitopes. This purple line is the, is the line of non-identity. Right? It shows you that if you have this other line here, that whatever is in here doesn't have anything that's in there. Right? It can get very, very confusing. Right? But you could set up Right? Sort of octolone is like this with all sorts of information in it. You could use this, let's say, as a diagnostic test. Right? So what are we going to do with our diagnostic test? Somebody comes into the hospital and they have, right, what, what do they have? They have a fever of unknown origin. And let's say we don't have any microbiologists at our hospital. Right? There was a budget cut. We don't need any of the microbiologists. All right, so we can't culture the blood, but we could use this as a test, perhaps, right? We could take that patient's blood, right? We could spin away all the cells to have the liquid portion of the blood. We have plasma or, right, other thing. We're going to add, right, their liquid portion of their blood in here. So any antibody that they have against a bacteria, and we, we are going to assume it's some sort of bacterial infection, so they should have antibodies to whatever bacteria is infecting them. And then let's say in these wells, we have just ground up different bacteria. So in here we have E. coli O21B6, and in here we have E. coli O41B7, or a whole bunch of different things, right? And we do this, and we set up this whole thing, and lo and behold, right, we're going to find that. Right? Because clearly, if we have the right bacteria, right, or, the, or a bacteria that we suspect, and we have that patient's blood, 
we should be able to see at least a line of identity. And that would tell us that, oh, okay, this patient has, you know, food poisoning caused by whatever strain, whatever, right, E. coli O27, I'm making it up, right? And oh, and the antibiotic that best treats that patient is tetracycline. Right? So we could use this as a diagnostic test. There could come a time, and this, these were absolutely used for diagnostic tests in the 50s and the 60s, right? We could get that. Oh, okay, well, it's a different, it's a different, right? They don't have antibodies to any of those bacteria, so maybe it's not a bacteria. Right? Well, then we could have all sorts of fungal pieces. We could have all sorts of, of uh, parasite pieces, right, to put in those individual wells to look for antibodies that are contained in that patient's blood. Right? And eventually, hopefully, we'll be able to see something we would know how to treat that patient. Right? So this had practical applications. This was not just, oh, let's just sort of throw this in and see what's going on in here, right? There were absolutely practical applications. So, right, that's why we can have the line of, line of identity, a single precipitation line the lines of non-identity, independent precipitation lines, or partial identity, right? Single lines and that other spur, that other little piece of non-identity. Right? So those are the three type of reactions that we could see from a precipitation reaction if we're going to look at this in right, this semi-solid media. Okay? So the other thing that we're going to be able to do as we're doing all this, this sort of uh, diffusion away is we can also get, I'm just going to put them all over, an agglutination reaction. And an agglutination reaction is going to be a reaction between antibodies and a particulate antigen. Okay. So an antibody, a particulate antigen is an antigen that's part of something else, right? Part of another particle. So as an example, we could get a hemagglutination. Right? We, can, we could agglutinate red blood cells. We could have antibodies to red blood cells. And this is how uh, tissue, how, not tissue, but blood cell typing is done. Right? Do you have type A blood? Do you have type B blood, AB blood, or O blood? Right? Depending upon the hemagglutination or the, right, or the agglutination of red blood cells. So this could take place here, right? So this is negatives, right? This is just blood in a well, and here's blood that our antibodies are interacting with, right? So you'd be able to see those reactions taking place. We could do the same thing with a bacterial agglutination. We could start looking at the titer, the antibody titer. So this could diagnose infection. So we don't even have to use an octolone. We could just take in a liquid form, Right? Those same sort of crushed up or, or minced up bacteria, we could have a, an entire array of them. We, we could have thousands of those samples, and then we just take some patient blood, and in these little wells, right, this could be right, patient blood with one bacterial strain, another bacterial strain, another one, burp, 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 right, all the way down the line, and then you would be able to see the agglutination taking place, and then you would know that that patient had antibodies to that particular bacteria. And then you could 
use your, right, whatever therapy you wanted to choose to be able to treat that infection, you could treat that infection for that individual patient. Again, right, we're trying to streamline this. We're trying to do it as, as, as positively, right, with the most amount of success to be able to identify what we have, but we're trying to do it as fast as we can, right? Now, we say we're trying to do it as fast as we can because we want to save lives, right? Because that's really what a hospital is all about, but let's get to the bottom line, right? We want to do it as quickly and as cheaply as we can, right? So we can charge people more and get paid more, right? So if we set this up, we could do it a lot faster, right? Because now we're doing everything in liquid form and we're going to get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of samples that we're going to be able to deal with, right? Because just from a couple of mLs of blood, Right? We're only going to put a couple of microliters worth of blood in each one of these wells. And then we're just, right, it's real easy for us to grow the bacteria, right? Well, not maybe the hospital, but the manufacturer, right, to supply those bacterial extracts to the hospital. And then we're going to be able to just use that as the diagnostic tool. All right, so that, this sort of agglutination reactions took the place of octrolones. Probably around at the same time. So again, the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, right? Octolones were on the way out. Agglutination reactions were on the way in, right? But again, this is all governed by, whoops, no, no, wrong way. <laughs> Sorry. This is all governed by, right? We're coming back to what we're talking about. This is all governed by this antigen-antibody interaction that's taking place. If we don't have an antigen-antibody interaction taking place, then we don't see any agglutination taking place, right? So, as we keep going further and further into the future, right, nowadays we're using what are called enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays, right, or the ELISA. We've got two different types of these ELISAs, right, so we have certain enzymes that are going to be involved, Right? Immune, right? Immuno, some sort of antibody. They're absorbing to something. They're holding on to something, right? So we have all sorts of things that are taking place. Right? So what are we going to set up here? Now we're going to use our same plastic dishes, right? And these plastic dishes are manufactured so that they're able to very well bind non-specific non protein to bind proteins non-specifically, right? So any sort of protein we add here, this plastic is going to be able to bind. And there's all sorts of different sort of plastics we can make and different ways to manufacture the plastic to make them more, right, uh, capable of, of binding to just proteins in general. So here's our well. We're going to add some antigen to this well, right? So this antigen is going to bind to this plastic. So now we're going to have antigen-coated plastic inside this well. We're going to wash away, right, all the antigen that didn't bind, right, because we don't need that floating around and getting in the way. And now what we're going to do is we're going to add some antibodies. Right? We add some antibodies that's specific to what's going, taking place here. Now we're going to wash those antibodies away. I never noticed Oh, okay, no. It's, now we're going to wash those antibodies away because we don't need all those antibodies that didn't bind to anything floating around and, and contributing to our background, right? So now this is what we have after our wash. And what we're going to do now is, now we're going to add an antibody molecule that has an enzyme coupled to it. 
Right? And that's our identifying antibody, right? Because right here, even though, yes, this, whatever we just added to our well here has antibodies that are capable of binding to this antigen, we still can't see it. Right? We don't have a way to visualize what's taking place. That's why we're going to add this enzyme-conjugated second antibody, right? This is an antibody. It's an idiotypic antibody because it's, right, if this was... Let's say this is uh, a rabbit antibody to a human protein, and now we need an antibody made to that rabbit protein, and it has an enzyme that is now non-specifically bound to it. So what do we got? We have our antigen coated on the well, we have our one antibody, and now we have another antibody with some sort of enzyme, right? And these enzymes can be just non-specifically bound to the antibody molecule, but it's pretty straightforward chemistry to be able to do this. So inside, right, our one well will probably have this, and then we're going to have some sort of control well, right, over here. Oh, I didn't make my antigens binding to the plastic, sorry. Okay. So then over here, I've got to make my antigens a little bit bigger over here. Over here, Right? If this didn't take place, right, then these antibodies that we're binding, right, these enzyme-linked antibodies that are in there, they're not going to have anything to bind to. When we wash this away now, right, there's going to be nothing in there to be able to uh, be an indicator. So what are we going to do? We're going to add some sort of substrate. This substrate is going to be acted on by this enzyme, and it's going to be able to produce some sort of product. Right? Simple enzyme uh, catalysis. Right? The only way that this is going to change color right, is as that substrate is acted on, and it turns into a product that turns into this yellow product. Right? So once we see a well that has this yellow color in it, that's a positive well. This well over here isn't going to turn yellow, because even though we're adding substrate, right, there's nothing for it to act upon or act upon it, so it's going to stay as substrate. So that's a negative reaction. So this, right, we'd be looking basically at this. This would be our negative reaction, right, because there was no antibody to bind there. The only way that we get a substrate here is if that, the, the only way we get a product here is if there was uh, this enzyme here working on the substrate. The only way, the only reason this enzyme is here is because it was able to identify this antibody that bound to this antigen. The only reason that antigen has an antibody binding to it because well, this antigen, this antibody was capable of recognizing the antigen. And if there's no antibody recognized antigen in our original solution, then there's nothing in there the whole way across. Question. So the, the antibody that's not specifically the enzyme, could it be made to the That one? Or the next one, yeah, the one with the enzyme on it? Yeah. Could it like, be the same as stuff? Like if that antibody was made so that it would also have an enzyme and be specific, like be able to bind to that antibody? Oh, do it in one step? Sure, you could do it in one step. Yeah. Okay. So this is the ELISA. This is an indirect ELISA. And then the other thing we can do is, right, we can have a sandwich ELISA right here. In the sandwich ELISA, we're going to make a sandwich, right? So we're going to start with antibodies being bound. 
right? So again, in this cartoon, right, they're showing all these nice sort of soldier-like antibodies in there. But remember, right, the antibodies are binding like this. Antibodies are binding like this. If they're binding non-specifically, right, we got all sorts of, right, I just, for full disclosure, right? But for this cartoon, let's just say our antibodies bind like this. We wash, we wash away all the antibodies that weren't binding. We now add antigen. We wash away all the antigen that didn't get bound. Now we're going to add our antibody bound with our substrate. And now we can start to see the reaction that's taking place in there. Yeah? What's the difference? Just in one, we're starting with antigen, and the other, we're starting with antibody. Well, all right, so let's say for a second that we want to screen everybody's blood in this room to see if you've been exposed to a certain pathogen. All right, so what am I going to do? I'm going to take that pathogen. I'm going to take up some of that ground-up pathogen. I'm going to add it. I'm going to do an indirect ELISA. Right? So I'm going to start with this. So I'm going to have dish after dish after dish. I'm going to come in here. I'm going to take everybody's blood. I'm going to add your blood into here. If, you have, if you've been exposed to this agent, whatever it is, you should have antibodies to it, and that's going to be a positive reaction. Right? On the other hand, right, let's say I want to collect everybody's blood. Right? I could do it this way, and then if I want to be able to see if, you have, if you're exposed to an antigen. A lot of times, right, people will do this to see how much drug is in the bloodstream at any one point in time. Right? to see if you have antibodies to a drug. So we could be able to use this sandwich, ELISA. Right, so again, this is all brought about by this nonspecific binding of plastic. But our plastic doesn't have to look like this. Right? We could make our plastic, I don't know, about this big maybe. Right? And you could go to CVS and you could buy this piece of plastic that's about this big. And we wouldn't be doing a, an indirect ELISA, we'd be doing a sandwich ELISA, because let's say we want to look for human coronagonic gonadotropin, right? We want to look for HCG. We take it home, we add some of our HCG to it, right? We have a pregnancy test, right? That's how pregnancy tests work. Question. Into, well, you could probably do it either way, right? If you wanted to start with, well, you probably could, yes. It would have to be a sandwich ELISA, right? Because you would need the antibodies first, and then you would be looking for the HCG, right? So it doesn't really matter. The plastic, right? You could think of, a, of all sorts of different ways to be able to use an ELISA, right? We don't have to be doing things in a dish, Right? So that's how home pregnancy test is going to be able to work. We use monoclonal antibodies or antibodies to HCG. The other thing that we could look at, we could do Western blotting. And with Western blotting, we're going to take a complex mixture of proteins. We're going to take those proteins, uh, subject them to electrophoresis. We're going to transfer those proteins to basically a, a sheet of paper. And from this complex mixture of proteins, we want to be able to identify a single protein. We're going to take antibodies that we have directed against this one protein. And when we develop this, we're going to see, right, this is antibodies to protein A, antibodies to protein B. From this complex mixture of proteins, we're going to be able to tell if we have these individual proteins in our mixture. 
So that's a Western blot to be able to take place. The other thing we can do is we can do some sort of immunofluorescence. We could take those antibodies that are going to be binding. We could take those antibodies that are going to be binding to cells, for instance. So on this slide, we have some cells. We fix those cells on the slide. We now add antibodies to, I don't know, some cell surface protein. We want to be able to see if that cell surface protein is on this cell. We could permeabilize this cell to be able to see if there are proteins inside we're interested in. Here we're going to add a fluorescent labeled antibody. Again, using that fluorescence label, it's no big deal. We can just non-specifically label an antibody molecule with a fluorescent tag. Right? We're going to add this mixture and we're going to be able to see those proteins that are inside and fluorescence is going to be able to take place. Okay, so we can do all these different things, but it all comes back to right, antigen-antibody interaction. If the antibody isn't recognizing that antigen, none of this is going to be able to take place. None of this is going to work. All right? Okay, well, that's about as far as we can go today. We're not going to do monoclonal antibodies. You can look at monoclonal antibodies. On Monday, we're starting nonspecific defense.